We're looking at Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. And as always, I'm going to encourage you to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me as we do so. Let me pray for us just briefly before we look at God's Word. Our Father, we would begin this year depending on you, first and foremost, for a blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that you would do what you have promised to do through the foolishness of preaching. We pray that you would save your people, that you would sanctify us, that you would build us up. We pray that you would remove from us every obstacle that keeps us from seeing your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask, our Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts wide that we might see all of the eternal majesty and glory of the Redeemer. We pray that you would teach us what it is to be true worshipers, those who give you the honor and the glory due to your name. And so, our God, please help us as we enter in this morning, and we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would accomplish your purposes, and that you would cause Christ to be formed in us. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18, and as the writer of Hebrews is coming to the end of this great letter, and he is exhorting his followers not to turn away from Christ, but to press on, he comes to this point in which he, he sort of summarizes everything that he has said in the letter, and everything in the most encapsulated way possible about what it means to stay close to the Lord by staying close to him in worship. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, the writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word Then the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the interesting things about the Reformation, and maybe one of those things that you've never heard or considered, is that the Reformation was, in one very real sense, first and foremost, a Reformation of worship. It was almost the overarching theme of the Reformation. How is God to be worshipped? How can we worship the Holy God? How can we enter into his presence? What is pleasing to him and what is not pleasing to him? And then following the work of the Reformers, we see very early in the 17th century that as the English Parliament called together, 
those 120 of the greatest theologians ever, the Westminster Assembly, the very first thing that they did was not to give us the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and the shorter catechism with all the rich theology and all the systematic truths of doctrine. The first thing that they gave us in 1645 was something called the Directory of Public Worship. And it dealt with all the facets of worship. It dealt with how we should do what we do in a worship service. What has God's word revealed to us? Why do we do what we do? You know, it's one of those things that I sort of, and and many pastors lament, is that there are people that go to churches day in and day out, week in and week out, and they never think, why do we do what we do and is what we're doing pleasing to God? And I have heard even in this church over the last eight years, people saying, well, I don't think it really matters that much. Well, I'll put this as kindly as I can. God killed Nadab and Abihu for false worship, for offering strange fire. I actually think the writer of Hebrews, when he comes to the end of this glorious passage and he says, we're getting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, let us then offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He is drawing on that Old Testament passage where God is saying how he is worshiped is supremely important to him. That, that, The most important, and I'll say this this morning, I I think I've come to a place where I believe this. The most important thing about the Christian life is the collective gathered worship of God by his people. Now, the writer of Hebrews has been setting out these undertones about worship. You have a people that were tempted to go back to sort of a formalistic, ritualistic, materialistic, external outward facade worship of Judaism. They were, they were tempted to do that because there would be less persecution. It seemed easier. It seemed better. Why does it matter? It shouldn't really matter. If, if we're worshiping Yahweh, it doesn't really matter. What's the difference? God, after all, gave the, the, the Old Testament ceremonial system and cultic system to Israel with the priesthood and with the temple, with that building they went to to worship God. Why does it matter If they go back to that, because Jesus very clearly said he came to burn down everything materialistic and external and to raise up a church that was spiritual in nature and that would worship him in spirit and truth in every part of the earth, a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. As Jesus said to the woman at the well, there's a time coming and now is when the true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem but God is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. And the writer, as he brings this letter to a close, and he said so many times, don't depart from Jesus, don't take your eyes off Jesus, don't go back to formalistic, materialistic, external things, don't trust in outward, earthly, temporary things. Trust in the heavenly realities. Trust in the heavenly Christ, who is the great high priest of a better temple, a better sacrifice, a better covenant, a better dwelling place, a better homeland, everything in the new covenant in Jesus is better. And now as he comes and he sets out this this final uh, sort of encapsulated argument for these people that were in danger of settling for something that was a cheap, weak, idolatrous now counterpart, the writer is going to do a number of things. He's going to contrast the Old Covenant worship service, the first gathered assembly that we see in the Old Testament as God brings Israel out of Egypt into the mountain. He's going to contrast what is going on there 
with the reality of true, acceptable, new covenant spiritual worship today. And he's going to do it under the figure of the two mountains, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. And he's going to say, these are the two mountains. And he's going to say that we don't come to the one that can be touched. We don't come to the temporary one. We don't come to the external. We don't come to the one that's terrible in its nature, thunder and lightning and all those things. We come to Mount Zion. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We are a heavenly people. We have been redeemed to worship the heavenly Christ. I'll give you actually five points out of here about what acceptable worship looks like. What, what are the sort of foundational principles of acceptable worship so that when we come to worship and we say, I have gone to worship the true and living God, we can leave and say, and I know that I have worshiped him in a way that is pleasing to him because I have experienced these things and I have engaged myself fully in these things and I have kept my eyes fixed steadfastly on the only mediator, Jesus, as I've worshipped. And those five things are that acceptable Lord's Day worship should be first gathered worship. It should second be God-centered worship. It should third be joyful worship. It is fourth mediated worship. And fifth, it is reverent worship. And as you look at this, notice that what the writer does in verse 18 and then again in verse 23 as he contrasts the old covenant experience of Israel at the mountain with the experience of new covenant believers and the privileges that we have, he says, you have not come. Now, um, the you is plural. He, he, he never, and very interestingly, worship. By the way, I do think all of life is worship. If you leave here and you wondered whether I think that, I do think that, I do believe that. But never in the Bible is worship ever spoken of individualistically, ever. If I'm wrong, please show me. It is never spoken of as an individual thing. It is always spoken of as a gathered assembly. You, plural, you. You, the redeemed assembly. You, the gathered people. You, the blood-bought people. You, the people that God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, the people that he has redeemed from this world, this fallen world. You, who he has ransomed to himself. You, who he has collectively redeemed, he commands to worship and You know, there's this really amazing thing in here because as a pastor, one of the things you notice, and it's it's funny, people think you don't see everything, you see everything as a pastor. You see every sigh, every moan, every smile, every nod, every nodding off. Um, One of the things you see as a pastor is people looking around to see who's who's in church. Um, I don't actually mind that. I mind it while I'm preaching, but but it's one of those things that, that you see people are looking around, who's here today? Are they there? Who's not there? And, and there's a sense in which um, the writer of Hebrews, and obviously the Lord giving us this word, wants us uh, to look around in worship. And, and he's going to say, the worship that is acceptable, the new covenant worship, is, is not only a gathering of people here on earth, but it is a gathering of the saints in heaven and on earth. He's essentially saying, look around, look who's there, look who's there. There's, there's a myriad of angels in festal garments. Wow. There's a myriad of angels in festal garments. There is, there is a church of the firstborn registered in heaven. There, there are the spirits of the just men and women who have gone before us. And, and they're there. They're all there. They're all there. Um, 
when my mom died two years ago, that the, the, the Sunday after the Sunday after her funeral, we, we were worshiping in the church she was a part of, and, um, and we sang the church's one foundation. And I love that last line, the last verse, yet she on earth has union with God the three-in-one, a mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. She was there, worshiping the Lord. Those who have been bought by his blood, they're there, and they're here. They're worshiping, they're in heaven. We're entering into heavenly worship with them. We are joining in with them. I know, you may say, we're in the city center. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit lifts the hearts and the minds of his people up, and he says, enter into that worship. Look who's here. And Jesus is there, and he's the mediator of the new covenant. He's standing as the head of the church. He's leading his people in worship. And so the first thing we see, notice, he says in verse 23, in verse 22, I'm sorry, you've not come to what may be touched, but, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the very place of the gathered assembly in heaven and on earth. That is one of the most amazing spiritual thoughts that you'll ever have as a Christian when that really grips you, the reality of entering into that gathered assembly. You know, um, it's so important, by the way, just as an aside, why, why is that so important? Why is it so important? Why can't I enter into that in my bedroom by myself? Well, the writer is going to everywhere say, if you, if you forsake the assembly, you're going to drift away from Jesus. You're not going to be a worshiper, and you're going to perish. I think I've told you that story. When I was 19, I, um, I was on a boat uh, on the uh, Okefenokee Swamp in Waycross. Never do this. And it was like this, this high off the water, and there were alligators everywhere. And, and the tour guide said, you know, whatever you do, Stay with the boats. Don't, don't deviate. And me and my superior 19-year-old wisdom with my friend decided to go down one of the lily pad fields that said do not enter and to just deviate. Uh, it looked nice. We're going to go down this little field over here. We got the engine stuck. I thought, this is it. Like, I'm dying on the Okefenokee Swamp. It was like 130 degree. And people say, well, what happened? Well, obviously I got out. I'm here. Um, but... But the point is, if you stray from the assembly, you won't get out. That's the whole point. If you wander from the assembly, if if Israelites wandered from the assembly in the wilderness, they die. If you wander from the assembly in the here and now, you wander from spiritual new covenant worship, not new covenant Presbyterian, new covenant worship, you die. That's what happens. You drift away, the writer says in chapter 2. You fall away. Um... And so it's sobering, being with the people of God, exhorting one another. How much this epistle says that, that when you come together, you exhort one another, and so much more as you see the day draw near. Exhort one another, lest you have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Encourage one another. Build each other up. That's, that's the whole point of the gathered assembly, worshiping in heaven and building each other up on earth. And then secondly, it's God-centered. Notice that, that and, and this is, seems like it should just be such an obvious Obvious thing, but notice that the writer says, you've not come to the mountain that couldn't be touched and that smoked and burned and a terrible voice so that the people said, I don't want to hear it anymore. But notice verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, that when we come to worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we are coming to the living God and to the city of the living God. And notice what the writer says, that we are coming, verse 23, to God, the judge of all. Um, You know, it sounds simpler than it is um, because so much that churches do is very deeply man-centered and they don't even realize how man-centered it is. Um, And it's tragic. It's tragic. They're really coming to whatever local church they're a part of, many churches, and we no doubt have done this ourselves. And, and you're, you're coming to see friends, you're coming because so-and-so is going to be there. I love Scotty Smith once said, you know, as much as I would love church to be me and 20 of my best friends, that's not what worship is, and that's not what the church is. And we're not coming, first and foremost, to the people of God. We're coming to the living God. You know, there's, there's a majesty. There's a majesty. We're in the presence of the triune God. That's why there should be a sense of quiet in preparing to worship. Um, There was a story I heard of uh, a minister. They had um, finished doing some renovations, and somebody in the congregation had had put a sign outside the the worship room door that said, uh, Beware of God. Beware of the dog. (laughs) Beware of God. Um, the writer of Hebrews is going to say it's, it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. This is the judge of all the earth. You know, uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's such an amazing book that often gets overlooked, but it has, this great, it has this great verse, I believe it's in chapter 5, where it says, when you draw near to worship God, draw near rather to hear than to offer the sacrifices of fools. Draw near to hear. So, so there's a sense where... This is not just, we're just doing the next thing, and this is one thing among many things. We are entering into the presence of the almighty, infinite, all-powerful, most high, most holy God who is judge over all the earth. Now, that should be terrible and frightening. The writer's going to say it shouldn't be frightening because there's blood. We're going to hear that. It's the difference. In the Old Testament, that God showed himself under the administration of the law to be unapproachable. That was the whole point in the temple. They wanted to go back to worship in the temple. They wanted to go back to earthly, external things. They wanted to go back to Judaism. But the whole point was you couldn't go into the most holy place unless you were the high priest once a year. That There was no access to the presence of God. We come to the living God when we worship. We come into the very presence of of the Almighty God, and that is spectacular. That's spectacular. And then, and probably the bulk of what the writer is seeking to say about acceptable worship is that it's spiritual in nature. You know, when I was a boy, my dad used to always, and I got so tired of hearing it, and he was so right, you know, we don't go to church, we are the church, you know, it's not the sanctuary, we are the temple. And he's right. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't go to church. We go to the heavenly Mount Zion. We, we don't worship. We don't go to a building to worship. We go to the Mount Zion above, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It can't be touched. It can't be seen. That's the marvel of it. The mountain could be touched. 
It smoked. They could see it. And they couldn't get into the presence of God. And God says, new covenant worship is spiritual and you can go right into the heavenly Zion. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You know, the writer will tell us all of that, obviously, is because of Christ. He's the forerunner who has gone into the temple for us. The, the, the veil was torn. His flesh was torn. The way into the holiest of all was not made known before. Now it is. All of the earthly temporal gone, done. God was done with it. Now, he not only burned the building to the ground, he burned the city to the ground. In AD 70, done. God says, I'm done. Now, anywhere my people gather to worship in truth, it is spiritual in nature. It is heavenly. It is so much more glorious. Now, I always like the um, illustration about the difference between old covenant worship with the externals and new covenant worship. And please don't hate me for this, but I really, I love superhero movies and I, I love Iron Man. And, and the best illustration is when, when Tony Stark is in the office after his dad has died and he's thinking about the legacy and whatnot and he has, he has a model in the office of what the Stark world is supposed to look like. And, and, and then he builds it. He, he builds it to spec. And that's old covenant worship was just the model. And to want to go back to that, there's, there's, there's no glory to that. There's, it's, it's empty. It's earthly. It's transitory. It's, it's not lasting. It's not eternal. But what we have in Christ through the resurrection, through him ascending to the Father, going to the right hand, opening heaven for us, carrying us through as the mediator is we have heavenly worship. And, and we can go right into the very throne room of heaven. We, the writer says, let us come with boldness to the throne of grace that we may find grace and mercy to help with time of need. And so this is this wonderful spiritual worship. It's done out of the prying eyes of men in the recesses of our hearts as we gather together to praise the living God. Um, You know, there's this hard part of this chapter at the very end here, verses 25 um, to 28, where it talks about, you know, and, he, and he's citing Habakkuk, and, and he says, there were things that were shaken um, in the earth, and that means God overturned things and and. and He's, he was establishing his kingdom. He was overthrowing earthly kingdoms and nations and, 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 and even the old Judaic forms of worship, the things on earth. And then notice he says, uh, notice this in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. Now, here's what he's saying. Even the heavens and the earth are temporary. You see, he's contrasting the temporary material with the eternal and the immaterial. And he's saying what we do in the new covenant is we worship the everlasting God and that his kingdom will never be shaken. The kingdom of which we're a part. We are the people of an everlasting kingdom that can't be shaken, can't be burned down, can't be destroyed, can't be touched, can't be seen. It's spiritual, entirely spiritual in nature. It's it includes the spirits of just men and women made perfect, even now gathered around the throne and the Lamb, praising God and crying out day and night. Now, 
Anything less than that is a counterfeit. Anything less than that is a counterfeit. There's not an option here. Let me say this as clearly as I can this morning. This passage does not say, well, here's one way you could worship, and then here's another way you could worship. And I mean, who are we to say that we're right and they're wrong? You either worship coming to the heavenly city of God and to the living God and to the spiritual everlasting kingdom and enter into that spiritual worship service when we worship or we don't. There's no, there's no other option. And, you know, not only is gathered worship, not only is, is acceptable worship gathered, God-centered and spiritual, it's joyful. You know, I, I love this. Notice, notice what it says, and the ESV actually nails this. I usually, you, you hear me correct the ESV a lot. I'm sorry about that. But notice it, it nails it. It says that when we come, notice this. It says in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to a myriad of angels in festal gatherings. Literally, it's, it's festive garments. Did you know that the angels had party clothes on in heaven? That's what he's saying. I know. I know that might seem odd. You maybe have never heard that. It says that in the Greek, it says festal garments. They are celebrating The worship service is a celebration. It's joyful. It's not fearful. It's sobering, but it's not fearful. Notice the contrast. The contrast. It was terrible. Notice verse 21. Old covenant worship with the trumpeting of the law of God and the demand for absolute perfect holiness without the mediation of Jesus. Moses, the old covenant mediator, said, I tremble with fear. The people were afraid. There was no celebrating and and partying and excitement. New covenant worship, festal garments, joy, angels celebrating. The people of God in heaven are praising God. Fullness of joy. That's what we enter into. Every time we worship. And, And if we're not, it says there's something wrong with our hearts. If we're not entering into joyful worship, there's something terribly, terribly wrong with us. There's something wrong with our thinking or with our living or some part of our life is so off if we are not celebrating and joyfully longing to enter in to that festal gathering in heaven. Well, the writer also says, and this is the really important point, is that it's mediated. Notice, after telling us about all those who are, that are in the heavenly worship service to which we are gathering, notice he says, you have come, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How do I know that God accepts my worship? That's a question, by the way, you should ask before you die. Please ask that question. How do I know that God has accepted my worship? And please don't answer it because I just felt really good after I left. That would be the wrong answer. I just really felt like it was good for me, and I just felt like, you know, by the way, the Bible never says draw any conclusions based on how you feel, ever. Never, not once. I like to feel good. I hope you like to feel good. I'm a sucker for pleasure. I like to feel good. I want to be happy. But the Bible tells us our worship is acceptable to God when Christ is leading us and when we are coming to him as the mediator 
and we are coming to the blood of sprinkling that speaks a better word, a word of acceptance and pardon, a word of mercy, a word of grace, a word of God's love and kindness. And, and we're coming and we're saying, if I'm not washed in that blood, nothing I do this morning is acceptable to God. If I'm not washed in that blood, nothing I want matters. Nothing. Not how I feel. Not what I think. Nothing. We're coming to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who ever lives to make intercession for us, who is, I tell my, my boys, trying to explain what a mediator is, I said it's a middle man-eater. I know that's ridiculous, but he is the middle man. He is God, and he is man, and he is God and man for us, and he reconciles to us to God. And you know, it's wonderful. True, acceptable worship must keep Jesus Christ at the center. It must keep the blood of sprinkling at the center. And you know what happens? This is amazing. I don't know if you know this, but right now, right now, Jesus' blood is saying things in two directions. It's saying things in two directions to make our worship acceptable. It is crying out to his Father for the pardon that he and the Father planned from all eternity that he accomplished by shedding that blood. He is saying, it is saying, my Father, I have satisfied your justice. I have satisfied your wrath. I have, I have atoned for the sins of my people, and it's saying to you, you are accepted. That's what the blood's saying. I have covered your sins. It speaks. John Owen actually says that. He says, Jesus' blood speaks to God and men. How wonderful is that? Are you listening to the blood of Jesus? Are you listening to the blood of Jesus? When you come to worship, you know, I don't make a big deal about this, and I should probably, because most of the churches I've been in have made a huge deal about this. You know, when we come to church, I love to see all the people of God and talk about how the week's been and enjoy fellowship and seeing people and, and caring and getting into people's lives. But, but the Bible makes a huge deal that when we come, our hearts should be quieted before the Lord. We should be expectant and we should be coming to listen. That's what Ecclesiastes says, draw near to hear rather than offer the sacrifices of fools. What do we hear? We hear the blood of Jesus. We hear Jesus saying, I have atoned for your sins. I have taken your sin on myself. I have taken the curse of the law away. I have made you righteous in my sight. I am sanctifying you by that blood. The whole book of Hebrews is that he, by that one offering, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has made us acceptable by that blood. And that blood continues to speak. You know, that, that beautiful picture there of the contrast between the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. Cain kills Abel. Abel's blood goes into the ground. And it, God says, I've heard the voice of your brother's blood. And he comes to execute vengeance on Cain. It's dreadful. God says, further cursing on you, Cain. And yet the contrast is, by way of contrast, Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for vengeance and judgment on those covered by it. It cries out for mercy. It cries out for peace between God and men. It says, I have accepted you. You know, there's actually, in, in the original language, it actually says, um, to the blood of sprinkling, that is speaking a better word. That it continues to speak. The blood of Jesus, the gospel, continues to speak. It continues to work. It continues to make our worship acceptable. So, we have a mediator. It's mediated worship. 
I love this. John Calvin, meditating on that, says, Christ's blood cries more efficaciously and is better heard by God than the blood of Abel. That's a wonderful statement. It cries out efficaciously. It cries out with powerful working and is heard better by God. Calvin actually thinks, says, cries out a better word. He says it's heard better by God. Think about that. When you are coming and you're saying, all I have is the Redeemer. All I have is the blood of Jesus. I have nothing else, nothing. That's all I've got. I'm not coming because I, you know, this week I didn't sin as much as last week. Or that's not what makes our worship acceptable. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the mediation of our great high priest. And then finally, it's, it's reverent worship. Notice how this comes to an end after telling us we, we have the great privilege of being part of this spiritual everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus, a kingdom that will never be shaken, never overthrown, never, never supplanted. Notice the last uh, imperative. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. I'm going to say this this morning. I've never said this. Um, don't mess around with God. You don't want to mess around with God. I mean, God consumed Nadab and Abihu. God opened the ground and swallowed up those that rebelled against him in the old covenant. I don't want to mess with that God, and I hope you won't. That God is a consuming fire. He may be absolutely merciful and gracious. He may forgive every sin. He does forgive every sin that you may have ever committed or will commit or could imagine committing. He forgives all of them if you're in Christ. That same God is a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. And I promise you, if you trifle with him, you will incur a wrath and a judgment that will never end. And it will be terrible for all of eternity. You know, I think about these days hell a lot uh, because it's so little talked about. But the worst thing in the world is for those who reject Jesus, who reject true worship, who reject the Redeemer, and one day God takes their breath and they wake up in hell forever. Forever. That's a terrible thought. I mean, that makes me want to weep. That's a terrible thought. And it's true because he's a consuming fire. And that means as we come boldly to that God, as we come joyfully to that God, as we come rejoicing that we have blood between us and that God, as we come knowing we have a mediator who has reconciled us to that God, who is God, who has reconciled us to himself, as we come and gather together to worship that God, and we do so with great joy and great thanksgiving and great praise and a great sense of undeservedness, we come and we worship him with reverence and with godly fear. We come sober. We come with a sense of awe, and we come with a sense of majesty. Now, I know that I don't do that like I should on a week-in and week-out basis. And I'm pretty sure I can speak for all of us in saying 
we don't do that on a week in and week out basis. And this is a reminder to us. The Lord is reminding us, look, what he has redeemed us for is to worship. He has purchased us to give him praise. He has bought us with the blood of Jesus so that we would gather and enter into that festal celebration, that heavenly worship service, that every week we would come and we would praise him. We would say, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. And we would take our eyes off of ourselves and when we look around, we would see what he wants us to see. And we would leave and we would say, because of the mediator, because of the blood that speaks, I have worshiped God. I have given him the glory due to his name. And I know that he has accepted my worship because I'm accepted in his son. I hope as we go through this series, you will be encouraged, stirred up, challenged, um, convicted, edified. Um, you know, I was with some uh, people yesterday from church, and I, you know, we were talking about worship, and I said, Lord's Day worship should be less entertaining than you might have hoped for and more edifying than you could have imagined. So it should be less entertaining and external than you might have hoped for, and it should be more edifying than you could have ever imagined. I hope by the end of this series we are being built up and growing as worshipers. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are weak and needy. We do not have the resources in ourselves. We are unacceptable in ourselves. Lord, we don't dare try to come into your presence without the mediation of your Son and without his blood. And our God, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would stir us up, that we might grow into the worshipers that you want us to be. We pray that you would teach us what acceptable worship is, that we would long for that that you would give us great joy and rejoicing, Father. We pray that you would stir us up this morning, that you would draw us closer to you, that, Lord Jesus, you would show us that new and living way that you have made known for us through your flesh and by your offering and by your intercession. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.